Let's pray. We, Lord, we thank you for your presence with us. Thank you, Lord, that when we wait upon you, we don't face an absence of activity, but a very intimate, very powerful workings of the Holy Spirit to push out and remove blockages that we ourselves could never have done on our own. We thank you, Lord, that even though it's not intuitive for us, you are here to draw us into that place even more powerful than words, even more powerful than our own actions. We bless your name. So we invite your presence today to come and minister to us, come and speak to us and get us ready for the days ahead, Lord, we pray. We thank you for the church that you have not abandoned nor left to its own devices, but you are actively forming, building, and make, uh, making completely in time and in sync with the times ahead right now, even now, even the, these times. And so we welcome your presence, we wel welcome your timing, we welcome your pace upon us, that each one of us will experience your hand just pressing upon us and giving us the right timing. We bless your name, Lord. So speak to us, we pray. We open up our hearts to you and invite heaven in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I would like to continue from uh, what we've been talking about regarding the church. The church at war is the, the theme of uh, um, this series from Isaiah chapter 36. And if you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36, we... Uh, encounter King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah, especially in Jerusalem, being surrounded by the Assyrians and being attacked by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had uh, become the rising empire. They were, uh, in many ways, um, undefeatable, uh, for that period anyway. And uh, Sennacherib had... Uh, um, claimed his rulership of the world, including Palestine, what we later call Palestine, as well as the, what we call the Levant, that, that narrow tract of land upon which Israel and Judah uh, lay. And so what we have is a situation in which um, King Hezekiah, is a, he's a, by, by and large a good king, a good king. Uh, he did a lot of good. And... Uh, he wasn't perfect, but he had to face with the confidence that he had uh, the might of Assyria that was the rising and dominating uh, empire, a uh, very aggressive empire, very militaristic empire uh, in, that, in, that in that era. And so I'd like, like to read with you. We won't read all of it. It's a quite long cha chapter, but uh, we'll, we'll read most of it. Let's read it from verse 1. I'm reading from the NASB, the New, Amer New American Standard Bible. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rebshakeh, an, an emissary, a high-level em emissary, from Lachish 
to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fullest field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? And last week we talked about the way in which attacks of the enemy uh, test our confidence, right? They test the basis of our confidence. What is the counsel, this counsel, confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master, to, to, to you and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried out with a loud voice and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. And then let's um, um, jump over to verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. We ended up there uh, last week, and we spoke about the fact that there are times in which we have no answer. We have no argument against the, the attacks of the enemy or the circumstances that have come against us. We have no thing we can conjure up, we cannot know, there's no argument, no proof, no confidence that we can conjure up out of ourselves or out of any of our helps. There's no Egypt. Egypt has proven to be completely uh, impotent against Assyria. Um, our big brother is, is dead, more or less, and we don't have any answer. We have no answer that can justify God either. Yeah? We have no answer. We have no, no way to prove to people in the world or people or our loved ones 
that God really is a God of love and that He really can, can be relied on to take care, take care of us. We talked about that. And we spoke about this space where sometimes God takes us in which the power of this silence is greater than the power of arguments and words and proofs. And God, a lot of times, takes us into such places where we feel the weakest, we feel the most, um, um, the, the most uh, perplexed in this situation. I want to back up a bit and talk a little bit about this situation because this situation, I believe, is prophetic for the church today. In many ways, the church is being closed in and besieged by the forces around. There are historical forces, there are intellectual forces, there are social forces, there are cultural forces, there are political forces, there are all kinds of forces that, that have only one aim, as far as the devil is concerned, the, dog, the god of this world, to actually snuff out the church's power and vitality and its life. It's to snuff out everything that God has wanted to do in and through the church. I believe we are coming to days which are in many ways the last days in which the kind of language that the, the scripture uses, whether it's in Daniel or it's in Revelation, must be taken seriously. You must take it seriously. You cannot be too sophisticated to say, well, this end times prophecy revelation is only for those Bible nerds who are kind of on the, on the, on the, on the fundamentalist side. They're all they are, they are just immersing themselves in Bible prophecies and all that. No, we cannot be too so sophisticated that we just discard parts of the Bible. Yeah? You have to, you have to take seriously that Darkness is coming upon the face of the earth. It's coming across this nation as, as it is coming with every other nation. But God says, arise and shine for the light has come Yeah, during such a time. So we are not believing in doom and gloom, but the doom and gloom is real. We just don't believe in it. We don't believe that that is going to have the, 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 the day. And in some ways, um, uh, Old Testament narratives can be seen in a prophetic way because we are to made to understand that the, the, the lives of the Old Testament saints and the narratives of the Old Testament saints are lessons for us today. They speak to us prophetically about the time. And I want, want to say that, especially after the past few weeks where we've been talking about the Lord uh, having a plan for us as a, as a body, and the Lord anticipates what is going to happen, it's important for us to think of the Scriptures not just as timeless, but also timely. That God actually does speak to us. And I believe that these are days in which God has given us some time to prepare for the days ahead. In which any kind of counterfeit Christianity, any kind of counterfeit spirituality, will not hold up against the darkness that is already come. In, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a pernicious sense, Russia is at the door of Ukraine. They're already at the door. The president of Ukraine has already left. He's left the, the building. I wonder whether this is a picture of things that are afoot, that as a church, it's important for us to be able to read, not with overconfidence, but with a certain soberness. Because if we are not ready for the days to come, 
then we will engage in things that will weaken us even more. Yeah? And so there's a way in which the picture of Assyria and the picture of Egypt can be good lessons for us to learn. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to us in such a way that His, His Word will not only strengthen us and comfort us, but actually cause any changes that are needed in our lives, any cause corrections that we, we need to have, any habits that are detrimental to our spiritual life, to be corrected as well. Yeah? So I believe that there's, there is a time that God has given to us. We are, we're, not, um, we're not out of time. We are, we are in the timing of God. And God has been very gracious to actually lead us as a body in such a way that all the circumstances that have taken place in the past two years have been prepared for, for us by the Lord. Okay? So I believe, that, I believe in that. I believe that. So as I'm, as I'm sharing with this with you, I, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trusting that God is, is speaking to us in such a way that we do not need to panic. We do not need to panic, nor be doom and gloom. Even though we take the doom and gloom seriously. Yeah, so we're not as ostriches that don't want to talk about it. But at the same time, we are um, sober and at the same time hopeful. Amen? There are certain things that Hezekiah did as practices, the certain pressures that he experienced that did affect what happened when the king of Assyria came through Rabshakeh. And that has to do with how he related to Egypt. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Egypt, his alliance with Egypt. You see, Hezekiah was, a, was a, actually a very wise king. He was a very urbane, a very smart king, a genius of a king. He was a great strategist. He's a godly man as well. He was a godly king. And, uh, but there's a certain section in Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 31, 33, in which the prophet detects that there is something in Isaiah that doesn't fully trust God. Doesn't fully trust God. The, 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 the power, the geopolitical kind of um, uh, dynamics were such that there was on the east side, eastern side, Assyria, Babylon, they were constantly vying for power. The Hittites were in the, in the north in Anatolia. But then to the to the, to the west of, of, uh, of Jerusalem was Egypt. Okay, Egypt. And the distance was quite considerable between east and west, Egypt and Assyria. The, the rise of Assyria was, 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 uh, was, was news to everybody. Everybody knew that. But the cool country, the cool empire, and the cool culture nearer to Palestine was Egypt. Okay, Egypt was the the cool dudes. Okay. They were the cool ones. The culture of Egypt was the urbane culture. Of course, it was agricultural. But it was, it was urbane in the sense that it was sophisticated. It was also powerful. And what had happened was that with Hezekiah's godliness, there was a bit of a mixture between his desiring to seek God to purify worship but there was also another part in which he made an alliance with Egypt because Egypt was what was the 
the advanced culture of that day. If you don't think about Assyria or Babylon, you would think Egypt. Egypt was the overshadowing umbrella that defined culture and what was advanced culture. Okay? And Hezekiah was an advanced guy. He was an advanced guy. Hezekiah was a guy who was, a, 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 who was, who was godly, and yet at the same time, he was, he was aware of the late, latest culture. Okay? And he made an alliance with Egypt. He made an alliance with Egypt. And in making an alliance of Egypt, it cost Judah a lot. Okay? cost Judah a lot. In those days, you can imagine how it is even in our culture. We try to practice our Christianity, but there is back of our, of our Christian faith, there's a certain cultural must-have, a cultural reality that sort of di- dictates our thinking with respect to success, prosperity, worth, identity, and value. Does that make sense? And one of the things that was important in those days was chariots and horses. Okay, you may be successful, you may have good plants, you have a good, good yield and everything, but if you don't have chariots and horses, you are but a, but, but a nation of a backwater state. Okay? And what Hezekiah understood was that without horses and chariots, he would not be able to withstand Assyria or any other country, right? But the thing about it is that, is that when God instituted the nation of Israel, there were no chariots. They were all foot soldiers. Do you know that? The whole army of Israel was shamefully all foot soldiers. God. Miserable, shameful in an age of chariots. But the chariots are expensive. And horses are expensive. Chariots were about 600 silver shekels. Chariots each, each, and 150 uh, silver shackles for per horse. Okay? And what happened was that in order to, to have a, a good combination of horse and chariot, you had to have the equivalent of about $250,000 US in US t- terms just to buy one pair horse chariot. Chariot, one chariot, one, one horse per chariot. Okay. So when the king of, uh, when the Sennacherib was, uh, was saying, I'll give you 2,000 horses, he was, he, was, he was telling you, you are not even in my league. Okay. But what Hezekiah did at the height of their prosperity is to buy a lot of horses and chariots from Egypt. By doing that, he spent a lot of his resources on Egypt. Spent a lot of his time in, on Egypt because that was the prudent thing to do. Because of the fact that value was measured in terms of chariots and horses. Okay? Chariots and horses. So he, he spent a lot. He spent so much that he began to compromise the treasury because He's a big picture kind of guy. He's a person who was preparing Jerusalem for any attack. So he created underground streams that would bring the waters from the, from the, from the, from the, 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 the melted mount 
melted snow from the mountains into Jerusalem. Those waterways and those underground canals still exist. Actually, you can go to Jerusalem, I heard, and actually see them. I have not. I've never been to Jerusalem, but I'm told that it's true. I want to put it to you that there is something about the prestige of Egypt that became a snare for Israel, for Judah, and for Judea, for, um, for Hezekiah. And if you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 30, 30, against the culture of the day, only Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, son of Amos, the prophet, stood against the prevailing culture, the sophisticated, the, the contemporary culture in which we should go Egypt. We should go Egypt, right? We should do e- the Egypt thing for the people of God. And you can also imagine the, the anxiety that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem are experiencing. And so in chapter 30 of uh, Isaiah, in, um, Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, to order, to order, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your, your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. Okay? Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. And then if you, if you jump over to verse 6, the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev through the land of, the, through the land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys. That's what, that's what Isaiah was saying about Hezekiah, okay, the good king. He was carrying them on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt whose, hand, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Or another prophecy Rahab, who just sits still, can't do anything. Yeah? So we, we can talk more about it. And, and, and what, what Isaiah was tra- saying to um, Hezekiah is this. There is an alternate safety. In quietness and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you are not willing. And you said, no, but we will flee on horses. 150 shekels for each one. And therefore you shall flee. We shall ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one man, and you will flee at the threat of five, until you are left as a flag on the top of a mountain, as a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And then he says, this is an alternate, this alternate future that he has. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. We, and there's, there's so much more that we can say. But I just want to just, just drop down, just download to, to all of us, just this sit, situation in which Isaiah was basically saying, you're making an alliance with Egypt, but Egypt shall be your shame. But Egypt shall be your shame. And I want to put it to you that actually one of the fatal flaws that was there in Hezekiah was the issue of shame. The shame of not being 
obeying, not being cool, not being safe, not being part of Egypt's, the big boy's kind of set. The, 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 the cost that he, um, uh, he incurred keeping up with the Joneses or the big boys was considerable, considerable. And instead of building up the spiritual life of the nation, his own nation, in silence and rest and seeking the Lord, he was actually using all his resources to keep up with the culture, the dominant culture of that day. And I feel that that would carry on and have dire consequences later on in the chapter when he encountered Assyria because you're going to find that that same problem was the source of attack by Rabshakeh from the Assyrian side. I want to put it to you that actually there are anxieties perhaps and the fear of shame that we can sometimes have no matter how much we desire to seek God. I think shame is one of the biggest problems that people today in our day and age experience. I've never experienced so much of an issue of shame coming to America than I have in my whole life. The, the issue of shame, not just the shame of humiliation, but the humiliation of not being cool. The humiliation of not being popular. The humiliation of being not thought of well by people. The humiliation of the cultural dominant values of the day that look at you unfavorably. I believe that the issue of shame has caused many Christians to accede to the demands of popular culture. The demands to be so cool that Christianity seems rather awkward. Rather awkward. And right there, before Assyria comes, God is speaking to Hezekiah and saying, you know what? There are greater dangers than you can know. But first of all, you've got to know that in rest and in silence, in me, in, in, in returning and repentance, is where your strength is going to be, not in Egypt. But you have expended a lot of your resources on Egypt, on being up with the, the Egyptians, up with Pharaoh, up with, the, with these people, and to protect yourself from the shame of being attacked, that you have no more resources left. Later on, when uh, the king of Assyria comes and, and shows his power, Hezekiah finds that Egypt has reneged on its promise. And that is why the rapture case says, what is your confidence? Is it in words? What words? The words of agreement that Hezekiah had made with Egypt. Okay? Those words. And Egypt had completely dumped those words, just like Hitler did with uh, Neville, Neville Ch Chamberlain. Yeah? He just dumped those words. Right? And what, what, what Rabshakeh begins to say to, to, um, uh, to Hezekiah and the people uh, on the wall is this. Look, you have put your trust in Egypt. You made an alliance with Egypt. The Egypt is actually a dud. 
it's like a reed that, that, that can't even stand up to pressure and it will poke you in the hands and that's exactly what happened. I believe shame is the cause for a lot of our Egypt, Egypt our pension for Egypt, okay? our love for Egypt, our going after Egypt because of this shame. But I tell you something, shame is something that does not just get eradicated just because we say that there's no shame in Jesus. It's not enough. It won't take the root out of shame out of us. Shame cannot just come out just like that. Shame cannot come when you are with the cool people. Shame doesn't come because you eat in the same canteen or whatever, and have your, have your lunch or sit, sit, sit with all the cool people. It does not get ridiculous. Reduced even. Doesn't even, doesn't, doesn't even get reduced. Because shame is something of a spirit that's rooted inside us. Shame does not get um, uh, cured by Egypt. Actually, Egypt will actually make shame worse because it's going to let you down. And I want to put it to you that actually what, what, what Isaiah was basically saying to Hezekiah is this. In order for you to not be shamed even more by, by Egypt, in order for you to overcome the fear of being rejected, being, being, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of grossly uh, contemporizing it, being cool, yeah, is that you have to stand on God's, God's word, God's faithfulness in the face of being called uncool. I think that's the problem with contemporary Christianity, we dare not do that. We want to be taught, thought of as smart, clever, easygoing. You know? And what happens is that it takes, it takes resources away from us because we want to have alliances and friendships and affections, and non-rejection from people. And what Isaiah was basically saying in Isaiah chapter 13, 30 is, is you've got to stand now. You've got to stand now. Yeah. Take the shame. Because shame is not something that's eradicated when people think highly of you. It's not going to be eradicated when you have a lot of horses and chariots. When you play the game of the world, when you play the urbane game, you have all the right opinions and you have all the right values. No, you have to take it now. Because when you are humiliated by the world and thought of despitefully and, they are, and people despitefully use you and you stand there, you will overcome the spirit of shame. That's the only way. If you don't overcome this, Assyria will come and he will do the same trick on you, but it will be worse. And so Hezekiah had this way in which a chance was given to him to make a stand because he's not going to bow down to Egypt because Egypt would overshadow him and it will, it will make fun of him. Egypt has never been a, a, a faithful friend to, 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 to Jerusalem. Yeah? And what happened is that the, 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 the pressure to be culturally relevant and to be culturally urbane was so strong upon upon Hezekiah, upon the nation of, of Judah, that they succumbed to it. 
and expended all their energies, all their strength, their powers upon things that would make them cool. Or make them strong or make them safe or make them acceptable in that region. And it failed them. It completely failed them. What Isaiah was saying is this. I have a different thing for you. You won't be big necessarily, but the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion for you. How blessed are those who long for Him. What? Just long for Him? Yes, long for Him. Although the Lord has given you the, dead, the bread of privation and water of oppression, yet He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher and your ears will hear a word be, behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right and to the left, and you will defile your graven images with silver and gold, and He will give you the rain for the seed and sow the ground and bread for your provender. And so there's a way in which Isaiah was basically saying is this. We all face shame, the fear of failure, the fear of being, of being failures in front of the public. We all face this. But you're not going to overcome it by keeping up with the Joneses. You're going to have to invest your life in your God and destroy your idols. Egypt was the source of their weakness. It was not the source of their strength. It was not to help them be stronger and have more confidence. It was actually the source of their weakness. Amen? I just wonder whether there, 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 there is a way in which we can make alliances with the world and have all the right things and not be, not be willing to be firmly situated on the Word of God. I've noticed how Christians nowadays don't like speak in the terms that make them look like fuddy-duddy fundies. We do not like to talk about the fact that 62 million babies have been aborted. We don't want to talk about it. it can't even, we can't even put our minds around it, let neither even talk about it. For fear that it will be considered politically inexpedient. I'm not saying we should suddenly become activists. Maybe, maybe you should, but I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this, that there's a way in which there are certain things about being a Christian that are offensive. And the issue is that you don't want to offend people just because you want to make a stand for God. I'm not into that. But there's some things about shame that plug into us that make us want to compromise and make us not be able to stand for the things of God. And perhaps the cure that God has for us is to be able to say, I am a Christian. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm not saying that you are horrible. I'm just saying this is what the Word of God says. We will come to situations in which we are, we are challenged to be Christians. It's pure and simple. Just simply, I am by what I am by the grace of God. And there are ways in which it is easy for us to become something else.
And so what happened was that the personal test that actually um, Hezekiah was, was facing was in how he relates to Egypt before he relates to Assyria. Yeah? Okay, let's have a look at this. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 36. And so Hirabshakeh comes and instead stands at the at the water at the water spouts and cries out with a loud voice, not just to the um, scribes and the officials, but to the whole nation in Jerusalem. And he says, Hear the sounds, verse 13, of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be, may, be able to dece- deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the land, the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you. Okay, first thing he says is this. There's a lure of Assyria that is putting pressure upon um, and Hezekiah and the, and the nation of Judah. He says, you know what? I have something for you. What I have for you is your own system of water. You have your own fruit. You get your own land. You get your own stuff, right? Can you see this? Make peace with me and come, to, come out to me and eat each of his own vine, each of his own fig tree, each of his own, the waters of his own system until I come and take you. What Assyria is basically saying is this. The advantage of being Assyrian is this. You come out to me, you make a stand, you come out to me, be mine, be mine, and I will make you have yours. I'll make you have yours. I'll make you have your own vines, your own water, your own stuff. You will own your own stuff. Isn't that amazing? Owning stuff is important, don't you think? And what happens is that he says, first of all, I'll let you own this stuff. Then after that, when you come to me, I will take you to a land just like your own. I believe that Assyria's tactic is not just coercive. It is actually, it has a lure. And the lure plugs into our desire to own stuff. It's our desire to be the lord of our own life, the navigator and the captain of our own future. What the, the king of, uh, of, of Assyria is basically saying is that you come out to me, I will give you the dream. This is the, not the American dream, but the Assyrian dream. The Assyrian dream is you get your own. You have your own peace in this world. And then, after that, I will take you to a place. It's not like Israel, but it's, it's similar. It's, it's just like your place. It has vines, it has bread, it has wheat, it has all that kind of stuff. It has wine. It is just like your place. And I wonder whether Assyria's lure 
has to do with these two things which are connected. First of all, you get your own life. That means that there is a way in which it's like, it's like Christianity and it's like the land that you're going to be taken to. The difference is this. You get to have your own destiny. You get to have your own dream. You can actually decide to craft your own dream. And with that dream, you can use all the resources to achieve it. Now, I want to say that the, Assyria, the Assyrians are trying to take us to a place that looks like Christianity. Looks like what God has. But it's not. Because what it is, it's, it's rooted in ourself. Ourself. It's rooted in self. Self, uh, self-referencing. It is using God for our own thing because it's for ourselves. Does that make sense? These are, these are the things that actually become an alternate Christianity, an alternate land. And I feel that it, we have to be really careful because what's happening is that the king of Assyria, he does not win us by coercing us first. He does later. But he wins us by giving us something that we really want. We want a Christianity that works for us. We want a Christianity that not only works for us, but is in our own interest. You look very quiet now. You all right? Are we still speaking? <laughs> the land that like, like us is a land in which all the scriptures of God, all the promises of God, have at their center, not God, but ourselves. It is our own. It is our own. I've been reading this book by Carl Truman, and he, and he um, quotes a very well-known landmark uh, um, book on the triumph of the, of the therapeutic. Yeah? And, and it's a very interesting thesis that he puts, he says, about 800 years and before, people look at the universe and pick, look, at, look at the earth and the world in a, in a framework that he calls mimetic. mimetic. That is that you, as a farmer, have to obey the order of nature. Okay? You order, if you obey the order of nature, you will have a good chance of having a good crop. Right? But nature determines for you what you can do and what you can't do. What you try to do is to order your life according to nature. In the, in the medieval period, there was also this understanding that you order your life according to what God has for you. So you try to live according to the Bible, for example, or you live according to the Word, word of God. You live according to limitations. The mimetic kind of um, pra- paradigm has to do with the fact that we are living in a world that has limitations and these limitations have been set by God and they've been set by nature. Yes? Okay? So when a farmer, you know, experiences limitations in his crop, he knows he has to go by nature's way or has to go by the book in order to live prosperously or live, live, uh, live well because there is an order in nature. Make sense? It's a mimetic, it's called, it's a mimetic kind of uh, paradigm in which 
we live according to, to laws and rules and order that has been preset by us. We don't set our own rules for living. Okay? And then the author also begins to say, but over the past years, as technology developed, there was a big change that took place. We begin to find that disease can be controlled. Birth and childbirth can be actually controlled. It's not that painful. We can actually not die from childbirth. And we begin to experience in technology the ability to actually dispatch cancers, we dispatch tuberculosis, we dispatch many, many diseases because of technology. And we begin to experience the fact that it's an intuition, it's a, it's a feeling that we can actually transcend ourselves. We can transcend ourselves. We can actually not be limited by our own natural limitations. We can actually get better. We can take drugs that can cause us to be stronger, fitter, last longer, and do more. Geography does not separate us anymore because I can take a plane and go to Michigan and be there in four hours. If I walk there, it would take considerably longer. And I may not survive the walk either. We are in the mimetic kind of paradigm. We are, we are bound by and controlled by our limitations. The idea that broke forth with the, with the, with the, the, um, the advent of technology and advancements is the, is the intuitive idea that we can transcend ourselves. We can live longer. In the past, we had to find out what was the meaning of life. Today, we can decide what kind of life we want. We can make meaning to life. And Carl Truman says, Nietzsche says, you can make your life a work of art. Why? Because of the fact that you can transcend yourself. Does that make sense? But the corollary to that is that nature and material and matter is to be molded according to will. We can decide what our life will be. We can decide what our dreams would be. We could decide what our gender could be. We can decide what our value would be and what our future will be. Yeah? Does that make sense? In contrast to the, the mimetic paradigm, you have the poetic, P-O-E-I-T-I-C, poetic, from the word poiesis. Mimetic is from mimesis, which is a rule-bound limitation, rules of the universe, rules of God. Poiesis has to do with you make it. You make your life. You make your destiny. You make your dreams. Does that make sense? According to Carl Truman, we are living in an age in which there's a subtle shift that's taken place in which we don't think in terms of finding out the meaning of our life, but we, we decide what kind of life we want to have. We create meaning in life because we can transcend ourselves. And because of that, matter becomes something that can be shaped according to our will, our creativity, our art, 
Nietzsche talked about making your, your life a, a work of art. You can decide what, what happens. Today, the values that are prevalent uh, in society today are really intuitively kind of plugged into that kind of idea that we can actually make of our, our life whatever we want to. The problem with that is that when you bring it into Christianity, it becomes a land like our own, but not, not the land of that God has for us because it is all the scriptures and all the array of Bible things of, 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 of Christian stuff is arrayed so that it can do this poiesis, this making, this creative making of our life. So that our life is lived with God and His Word at our service and with the Holy Spirit at our service. That's the difference. And what, um, the, the, what Rav Shakeh was basically saying is this, what I offer you today is like, and may I put it in a contemporary way, like Christianity. It's Christianity, but actually what you can do is that you can make your dreams come true because you have already transcended to a large extent yourself. You have transcended the Word of God. You've transcended the Word of God, but you can actually use the Word of God because the Word of God is like a poesis. You can actually use it to make your dreams come true. You can become who you want. You can be everything that you say you want to be. Does that make sense? And I want to put it to you is this. At the root of it, Hezekiah had not got past the shame or what he didn't want to be. And as the Rabshakeh comes to him, he basically says, I will take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. What he was saying is this, look, your life is in your hands. You don't have to live mimetically. You can live the way you want to. And we will give you something just like your religion. Just like your religion. And so Hezekiah comes and he feels that the force of, of Assyria, and the force of Assyria is different from the force of Egypt. Egypt, he could make his choice whether he goes to them or not. But Assyria says, you have no choice. You have to come to me. I'm going to force you. And that's true of us. When we make choices for God, we escape the coercion of the world. And what happens is this, um, Hezekiah comes to, comes to, um, um, to, to his, his, uh, his prophet Isaiah and he has no words to say. He has no words. He cannot answer. I just want to say that as a church, it is very important for us to be able to be plugged into the Lord and be careful about words that are being imposed upon us that are words that have Rabshakeh's accent to them. You see, because Shebna and, and Eliab and all said to, to Rabshakeh, don't talk to them in, uh, in, uh, in Hebrew. Talk to us in Aramaic. We understand the international language. And Rabshakeh said, I'm talking not only to you, I'm talking to everybody. And he spoke Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. And when he spoke Hebrew, he spoke it in such a way that everybody could understand. 
He used the same words that they were used to. He used the same words that they were familiar with. They used, he probably used the same words that were like the religious words that they had. But you know what? It had an accent. It had an Assyrian accent to it. And sometimes what happens is this. When the devil wants to cause us to enter into a life in which it is like Christianity, but it's not exactly it, where self is in the, and is in the middle of it, the self is in the center of it, he uses Christian words. Words that we love, Christian uh, concepts that we love, but he empties it out of meaning. It empties it out of content, and he puts his own content in it. It's almost as if they were hearing the word of God in an in a Assyrian accent. And that's why they said, don't talk, don't talk to us in this way. Talk to us in Aramaic. Because there's a way in which the language was confused. It was just like confusion to um, the people of, on, sitting on the wall. I want to put it to you that there's ways in which we as a church have something that God has for us that is far more profound, far more creative than the words that sound like it in the world. When God uses the word compassion, He uses it in a way that is different from the way the world uses it. The world's use of the word compassion does not have any supernatural power in it. When God uses the word compassion, He doesn't just mean pity. He means the compassion that comes when supernatural love of God comes in and causes us to do miracles. The power doesn't lie in ourselves or in our own particular philosophies, but it lies in God. It lies when we wait upon God and as we enter into prayer, He brings about something that is solid, not just compassion as an emotion or a particular act. Make sense? When God says, I'm a God of justice, he does not mean balancing out things that are wrong in favor of those of being wronged only. I said, use, notice I use the word only. He means the power and the destiny of God that will do all that, but cause us to not become prosperous and not poor and then still go to hell. The justice of God it's mimetic in that sense, in the, in the sense that God rescues us out of our bondage and calls us out, not from our talking, but from, from our own humanity into Himself. And when He does that, He puts upon us His power. Amen? What we are looking for is the way in which God can take charge of our life, take charge and hold us and cause our lives to be held up so much so that in the waiting, God was actually going to cause every power that causes us to run away and to try to fix ourselves to be still in this place of waiting. And that is why Senator Ibb, after all it is said, the, 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 the emissaries of King Hezekiah said, you just keep quiet. Because quietness is the only thing that will get you into the presence of God. There are going to be many people who will tell you 
you should be doing this, saying, saying something that would uh, argue them back. He says, first of all, you need to enter in and hear the word of the Lord. You see, God is going to bring us to situations where we are facing all kinds of enemies and the only place to do is to come into that place in which we are ripping our, our garments apart and coming into His presence of God and say, God, unless you give me a word, unless you give me and, 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 and cause that word to be deposited in me, I have no answer. My answer is not Egypt. My answer is not Christianity contextualized and made into something else just like the world. My answer is you. You've got to come to me. You have to come to me in this waiting. And I want to put it to you that actually in this period of time, God has given us a time to wait upon Him. Even though it doesn't seem like anything is happening, even though your, your feelings are still the same, your emotions still feel pain, in pain, you are, God is bringing you to this place where no answer, no proof, no, ha- no help, no resources can actually be brought to bear. You are completely alone with God. And this is the only thing that's going to cause shame to go away. It is not enough for me to tell you there is no shame because of what Christ has done. Because God loves you, God accepts you. No, it's not going to be enough. Because when I go to my next failure, next failure will make me experience shame. Not because of the logic of it, but because of the fact that shame is a spirit that can be in me. I need shame to be destroyed, not talked out of. Does that make sense? It is not enough for me as a Christian to be able to say, no shame, no shame, no shame. No, there is shame because your, your words, because, and that's where the confidence is, is, is put in question. The words are not enough. I have to stand and face the, the shame coming upon me again and again. My uncoolness, my, my standing alone, that, my taking positions with God that are really difficult. I have to do that and stand until the shame is defeated. I don't know whether the church is ready for that. But we have our Egypt. Assyria isn't, isn't there yet. But Egypt is here. And right now, and the daily work that we do as we build ourselves in the Lord, the Lord is building up you and I when we are found to have no answer to the enemy. No answer. The answer doesn't lie in us relating out there. The answer lies in coming to God and allowing God to put faith in us. And what happened was, and we will talk about it later, Isaiah Isaiah comes and he says, this is the word of the Lord. He's going to be distracted and he's going to go. And there will be no more. He will not even come. He won't even enter into the city. Now, how do you get that word to become powerful? You have to wait upon it until the conviction arises. And it's not just the word. It becomes a, a, a real substance in us. To the extent that God becomes close, as, as Scott was speaking about. It's the friendship of the Lord. It's to them that fear Him. You don't take Egypt. You don't go after Egypt. You come to the Lord and say, Lord, I understand my lack of comfort. And I'm going to stay in that lack of comfort until comfort comes. Now, what God is going to do with all of us is to cause all of us to experience this. This experience in which in the, in the midst of that silence, in the midst of that desolation, 
you will experience God coming to you. You will come with no answers. You put the, put, put the problem before the Lord and you lift it up before the Lord and you lay it up before the Lord. And in that wait, period of waiting, there's only one thing you're waiting for. You're waiting for the word of the Lord with conviction. When the word of the Lord comes with conviction, it will put power in you and I. Amen? So that our safety doesn't lie in Egypt, but our safety lies in God. Amen? Every day, while it is still considered now, Paul says, we have the opportunity to face our shame and not kind of assuage it by just a lot of words. Those words may be true, but it's only on waiting on God that the word becomes substance upon us. Amen? I want to invite you to this period. This is, this is a period in which every force that we face will be to try to have a sort of Christianity that is like God, but it doesn't require God. God is calling us. And I believe that we have this amount of time. I believe that there will be persecution. I'm very sure of it. But the persecution is the occasion for the thing that has happened in our times of waiting of silence to become real. Let us pray. There are times in which we wish that God can be more relatable. We wish that God can be easier to understand and that we have answers and we have things that we can pull out of our back, back pocket to counter the anxieties and fears that we have. There are times in which we feel that we do not want to be put in a position where we are speechless. The chapter 36 ends at that very awkward place. But I would put it to you that this is the most powerful thing that can happen to us. The most powerful place. Because that place depends only solely upon God speaking through, shining through. Many words were spoken by Isaiah. Many words, sorry, were spoken in answer to Sennacherib's words. But that space was no longer a clash of words anymore, a clash of values, a clash of ideas a clash of kingdoms, but it was a place where God cleared out every demonic spirit, cleared out the power of Assyria and arose as the only one in the game. We sometimes think that a Sennacherib is the one and we are the other, but there's only one in the game and that's God. And he's bringing us into a place 
with all our anxieties, our fears, all our doings and all the things that are done to us, bring us to this place where God's saying, you have to wait on me. You have to wait on me to come at my pleasure and not at your pleasure. You have to wait on me that I will come when I think it's the right time. And through all that time, you feel that you're dying a thousand deaths. But true, you are dying to shame. And when I come, the shame will be gone. No criticism, no backbiting, no publication will make you shamed. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Lord. We welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. If there's anyone who's feeling this, you're in a situation where you've been threatened and you have no resources to combat it, I want to invite you to lift up your hands before God with nothing in them, just waiting for God. Say, Lord, I come before you. I have no answer to what my loved ones say, who say, where is your God? I transfer the center of gravity of everything from myself to you. I want to live for you. I want you to be the one. We welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you, Lord. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And so we welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you are building the church and building our faith. And we surrender ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.